0: Hey everyone, this is Johnny Martinez, pastor of Restoration Church, and welcome to our podcast. We hope this podcast inspires you and encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Uh, as we were singing that last song, before, before I jump into the message, as we were singing that last song, how great your love is, how great your love is. I just want to talk to those of you that maybe currently are going through just something hard, something tough. I want to let you know that God loves you, that God cares for you, that he knows what you're going through, that he knows your pain, that he knows and he sees your brokenness, that he sees what you're going through, and he loves you, he cares about you, and he's waiting for you to come to him, to trust in him, to lead you and, and not guide you around the situation, but through the situation. He loves you no matter where you're at, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from. You're loved by God and cared by him. I just want to let someone know, maybe it's been a long time that you've been told that you're loved and that you matter and that you're worthy. You are. You really, really are. So hey, church. says we've been working our way through the gospel of Mark. Uh, we've come to Mark chapter 8. We've just kind of been going section by section by section, going through this amazing gospel. And today I titled the message, The Cost of Discipleship. The Cost of Discipleship. Um, Let me just kind of give you a really simple way to understand the gospel of Mark. Um, Just a really easy way for you to begin to see Mark from a bird's-eye perspective. Uh, From the very beginning of Mark up until uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 31, which is Peter's confession. If you remember, Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ. So all all of Mark, all of the first eight chapters are essentially Jesus' public ministry in the region of Galilee. He's been preaching, he's been healing people, he's been uh, delivering people from spirits. Like, like he's, that, he's been ministering to people in that region of Galilee for the first eight chapters. Then we hit Peter's confession. Uh, and Peter's confession uh, is the hinge where things start to change in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, From Peter's confession on, Jesus is now not ministering to people. He's ministering to his disciples as he heads towards the cross, as he heads towards Jerusalem. And so for the next three, about three chapters, we're going to see three cycles. Uh, We're going to see three cycles, and every single cycle has three elements to it. The three elements are this. There's going to be a prediction of Jesus' death. Jesus is going to predict his death. The disciples are going to misunderstand that prediction. They're not going to get it, right? They fail to understand. And then Jesus is going to teach them about discipleship. What does it really mean to follow after Christ? So, again, simple, simple way to see the Gospel of Mark so far. First eight chapters, uh, Jesus' public ministry The confession is the hinge where things turn. Then you have these three cycles over the next three chapters of Jesus predicting his death, the disciples misinterpreting his death, and then Jesus teaching on what it means to follow Christ. And that really takes you up to Mark chapter 10. And so you can now have a big perspective of what the gospel of Mark is, its structure, its basic structure. So today we're going to start that first cycle here in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Let's go ahead and read that. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is your word that is inerrant, infallible, and authoritative to our lives. God, I pray today that you would allow us to grow in our knowledge of you, but not for knowledge's sake, but to grow in our knowledge of you and of your word and what you called us to do so that we can live for you, so that we can honor you, so that our lives can bring you glory so that those who don't know you may know you. God, speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Make these words just be clear and simple. May you challenge us, comfort us, and lead us, God, to the life that you've called us to live. Help us today, God, be true disciples of of who you are. And if we've come burdened today by the storms of life, by the winds and the waves that we feel are crashing up against us each and every day. Pray that you would comfort our hearts, our minds, give us peace so that we could hear what you have to say to us today. We focus on you for the next couple of minutes. God, speak to us powerfully and clearly through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Growing up, um, I don't know about you, but growing up, My mom would make us clean the house every single Sunday or Saturday. Every single Saturday, we had to clean our house. My brother, and I have a younger brother. He's about four years younger than me. Now, here's the deal. My mom didn't uh, make us clean the house uh, on Saturday like normal parents would. When, When children would wake up, you know, around 12, 1, 2, or whatever, you know, late, my mom would wake us up very early on Saturday, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning to clean the house. We were kids. I'm telling you, we were kids. I think I was still in my diapers when my mom made me do that. But as long as I could remember, I grew up every Saturday morning cleaning our house. Now, here's the thing. I was that kid that uh, would always want to take the easy way out. Like, I always wanted to take the path of least resistance. I always wanted to do just the minimum. And so when it was my turn to clean, for example, the bathroom, I would clean the bathroom, but I would clean the bathroom just enough to pass the inspection, okay? And I'm telling you, my mom was serious about this cleaning thing, but let me tell you why. Not only did she wake us up very early, but if we had friends over, like stay the night, our friends would also clean too. They're like, dude, your mom's going to make me clean. Yeah, hurry up, get the brush, let's go. And so she was serious about this. So after I would clean, clean the, the bathroom, she would come in and inspect. And most of the time, she would make me do it over again because it was not clean. It was not clean at all. And it's not that my mom was super picky or whatever. It's just that I did a terrible job. Like, let's just be honest. It was really bad. Like, it was really, really bad. And so I was, I was just that type of kid that I always tried to take the shortcuts. I didn't want to do it. Then I met my cousin. My cousin Charlie lived with us for a while too. And my mom would obviously make him clean as well. And so I noticed that cousin Charlie, who's about three years younger than me, never had to redo the restroom. I'm like, this dude must be an amazing cleaner. Like, what is the deal with this guy? And so I remember, uh, I was in high school, like freshman or so, and I walk into uh, the bathroom, and Charlie is sitting on the tub, on the edge of the tub, just spraying the cleaner in the air. And I go, what are you doing? He says, I'm cleaning the bathroom. I'm like, that's not cleaning the bathroom. I, I look in the toilet; it's dirty. the The sink's dirty. The, the tub's dirty. I'm like, dude, this, it's so dirty. He's like, uh-uh. He's like, here's the trick: if it smells clean, your mom won't check it. And, and so I'm like, dude, you are, you are the master at taking the easy way out. Like this dude, like, is legit. So my mom would walk into the to the bathroom; it smelled clean. She wouldn't even check it. Like. I've forgiven my cousin Charlie for that, for not telling me what he was doing, because I would have done the same thing. But I I like taking the easy way out as a young kid. Charlie definitely took the easy way out, the road of least resistance. And the truth is, church, that a lot of us also like taking the easy way out. Isn't that true? A lot of us in many areas of our lives try to take the path of least resistance, the path, that, the path that is less costly, the path that requires a lot less of us, the least amount of sacrifice, the least amount of suffering, we try to take that path. I mean, think about our relationships with one another. Whenever we hurt someone with our actions or words, it's very difficult to ask for forgiveness, isn't it? But what's the easy way there? The easy way there is not to go to someone and ask for forgiveness. It's really not to, to, to it's really to avoid it. That's the easy way out. Hey, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness because I love the pride or I'm just kind of uh, humiliated by it or I just don't want to. And it's a lot easier not asking for forgiveness when we've messed up. We take the easy path. Or what about a difficult conversation? Maybe. You have to have a difficult conversation with a coworker, a friend, a family member. Uh, maybe in your marriage, you have to have a difficult conversation. And what's the easy road out? What's the easy way out? Not having that conversation. To avoid those difficult moments, avoid those difficult conversations. What about when it comes to serving each other? Right, Galatians chapter 5:13 is that we are to serve one another. It's easy to serve ourselves. That's the easy way out. Like, it's super easy to serve ourselves, what we want. But, man, it's so much harder to serve other people, sacrifice for other people. What about unity? All right, God calls us to unity. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, hey, we need to be united and not divided. It's very difficult. It costs a lot to have unity in a church, unity in a family, unity in a marriage, unity at work. It costs a lot. It's very costly. But what's the road that's easy? What's the easier way to travel? Well, not do anything about it. Or in another way, maybe even create more division. That's easy. Anybody could create division. But not many people can create unity. Why? Because it costs a lot. It's difficult. What about loving the people that hurt you? We've all been hurt by those people. Man, it's so hard to love the easy thing is to just say, "Hey, this person hurt me. I'm just going to kick them to the curb. I'm done with them." But it's so much more difficult to love them. It costs more to love them. I on my Facebook this week I put a a, a post out there, question. Uh, it has nothing to do with the sermon, but with with this particular thing. But I said, "Hey, if." Uh, uh, what's, what's one of the best like pieces of advice you've gotten from a leader? You know, like, hey, just give me like a one-liner. Um, we went to a leadership conference in, in this past week and I was just curious as to what's one good piece of advice someone has received from their leader, like leadership advice. And uh, so I kind of put mine out there and some people commented, but this person put this this quote here um, on, on, the, on Facebook and it says this, and it's mainly towards for leadership, but it relates to all the other areas in our life. It says this, The quote's this, pay now or pay later, but eventually you're going to have to pay. Pay now or pay later, but eventually you're going to have to pay. And that is so true even when it comes to relationships. Like having a healthy marriage, a healthy home, a healthy church, healthy friendships, it takes work, it costs, it's messy, and we're going to pay. But if we don't pay up front, we're eventually going to pay later. We're going to pay either way. It depends what road you are willing to take, the easy road or the difficult road. Maybe the the same is true with our relationship with God, isn't it? Nowadays, we want blessing without obedience. We want glory without sacrifice. We want the crown without the cross. We want victory without suffering. Isn't that true? Like, God, I see this all the time. God, give me my victory. You have, I have victory in you. I have victory. I'm waiting for my blessing, God. But just don't ask me to sacrifice. Don't ask me to suffer. Don't ask me to be obedient because I'm just waiting for my victory. And so we try to avoid suffering. We try to avoid the cross. We try to avoid that difficult road. A lot of the times as Christ followers, the truth is we want to follow Jesus as long as it doesn't cost us too much. We're okay with doing the minimum so that we can feel good about ourselves and pat ourselves on the back. Man, I feel good. I did the bare minimum. I feel good. I checked the box. We're inspired when we hear stories of other believers that attempted great things for christ and sacrificed great things for christ but man are we intimidated when god calls us to sacrifice when god calls us to obedience like hey that was an awesome story i can't believe you're going out and living for god and god is using you that is so inspiring when god calls us god i was talking about them Not me, God. I'm talking about them. Like, talk to them. Use them. You know, I'm in my comfort zone here, God. Church, let me just be clear today. When we said yes to Jesus, we said no to easy. Let me say that again. When we said yes to Jesus, we said no to easy. Following Jesus is not easy. There is no such thing as the easy road when it comes to following Christ. There is no such thing as a path with no suffering, no sacrifice when it comes to being a true disciple of Jesus. So here's my plan. Here's my goal for today. Very simple today. By the time you leave here today, I want you to have the answers to these two questions. Number one. What does it cost to follow Jesus? And number two, what is our motivation to pay the cost? Like what is gonna keep us motivated to endure the suffering, to endure the cost, to endure the sacrifice, to keep on going when we want to quit, to keep on loving people when the truth is we don't wanna love them, to keep on sacrificing who we are, For Christ, what is that motivation? Very simple, very clear. So let's take a look at the passage. There are two main overall umbrellas that I want you to see. The first thing, if you're taking notes, is this. I want you to see the confusion. I want you to see the confusion, again, the misunderstanding in the disciples' heart. Verse 31 says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, clearly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice a couple things in this passage. Mark tells us that Jesus must suffer. He must suffer. It's not an option for Jesus to take the easy road. It wasn't an option for Jesus to go around the cross. He must suffer. Why, was, why should Jesus go to the cross? Why must he go to the cross? Well, first, because it was predicted, right, by the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament that the Messiah must suffer. Secondly, because it was divinely ordained by God that Jesus Christ must suffer. And Mark tells us, He's going to get rejected. He must suffer many things. What are these many things? Arrest, trial, humiliation, beatings, mockings, and of course, the agony of the crucifixion. Notice that Mark says, hey, he must be rejected. He must suffer all of these things and be rejected by who? By the religious establishment of that day. The elders, the chief priests, the scribes, these groups who will reject Jesus actually belong to a group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish court in Israel, something very similar to like our Supreme Court, but a Supreme Court of that time. I mean, this was a big, big deal. And so he was gonna get rejected by the religious institution of the day. And notice what Mark says. That he, or notice what Jesus says to his disciples in Mark. That he must be killed and after three days rise again. I want to stop here for a second. This must have been puzzling to the disciples. I mean, Peter just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the expected one, the saving one, the redeeming one, right? Like the one who's going to save the Jewish people from Rome, and then Jesus says, "Hey, I'm going to die on the I'm going to die and be killed and be rejected," and Peter's just like, "What?" Like Peter could not understand that the Messiah had to suffer. Peter couldn't understand, uh, couldn't get his mind around a suffering Messiah. It didn't make sense. Why? Because Peter and the Jewish people were expecting a different type of Savior an earthly savior. They were expecting a king from the line of David who would free the nation, crush Israel's enemies, and establish a kingdom of righteousness and justice in Jerusalem. They were looking for this political revolutionary, an earthly revolutionary. Instead, they got a suffering Messiah. And they could not get their minds around that. They couldn't understand. And so what does Peter do? He begins to rebuke Jesus. He takes Jesus to the side and he rebukes Jesus. I mean, think about that. The word rebuke, Mark, Mark used the same word uh, in, in earlier in, in the gospel of Mark when Jesus was rebuking a, a demon out of a man. That is a strong, strong word. He's using the same word in Greek. Strong word. And so you can see the power there when Peter is rebuking Jesus, saying, no. Like, you got it all wrong. You can't suffer. You can't die. You can't go to the cross. Like, you're crazy. Now, the question is, why did Peter rebuke Jesus? I think there's two reasons. Why did Peter rebuke Jesus? Was it because he loved Jesus and didn't want him to suffer? Probably. I think he loved Jesus. He did. I think the reason why he rebuked Jesus, like I was saying, is he had a faulty understanding of what the Messiah was to be. He had this faulty understanding that that the Messiah was supposed to be a political leader, a revolutionary, and so he couldn't get his mind around it, so he rebuked Peter. But the second reason why I think that Peter begins to rebuke Jesus is this. Let me ask you this question. If their master, Peter and the other disciples, if their master was going to suffer and be killed, who was also going to experience suffering and death? His disciples. He rebukes Jesus because he's trying to take the easy way out. He knows that as the master, teacher, rabbi they've been following for some time goes, so will they. If there is a cross in his future, there's a cross in their future. And they're saying, Jesus, take the easy way out, man. Like, I don't, I don't want to go to the cross. You go to the cross. Take the easy way out. So what does Jesus do? He rebukes Peter. He looks at his disciples, most likely because they were in agreement with Peter, and he begins to rebuke Peter. Now think about that for a second, right? If you're Peter, right, right before this moment, like you think you're all that. Like you think you're all that in a bag of chips. Like you just confessed Jesus as the Christ. Up until this point, no one has ever gotten Jesus' identity right. No one has. And so Peter confesses Jesus as Christ and Jesus says, hey, you are so right, Peter. And guess what? On you and on your confession, I'm gonna build my church. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was Peter, I'd be like, What's up, guys? Jesus said he's going to build his church on me, not you. Not you guys, right? I mean, it's true. He's probably on a high. And now he's getting rebuked by Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, get behind me, Satan. I mean, he was probably just crushed, right? Just completely crushed. I can just picture all the other disciples like, told you, Peter. Told you, Peter, pride comes before the fall. You better watch it, man. You better watch it. And so Jesus begins to rebuke Peter, get behind me, Satan. What what did Jesus mean by this? Well, he's not rebuking Peter himself as Satan or calling him Satan. He's rebuking his thoughts. That's what he's doing. He's rebuking his thoughts because Peter's thoughts are not from God. Peter's thoughts are manly, earthly thoughts. Peter's thoughts go against the will of God. The will of God was for Jesus, the Messiah, to suffer and die. And Peter was trying to stop that. And so Jesus rebukes Peter and says, Hey, get, get behind me, Satan. So he rebukes Peter's thoughts, not Peter himself. You see, Peter's actions were contrary to God's will and plan. For Christ, there was no easy road. For Christ, there is no glory without suffering. For Christ, there is no crown without the cross. There is no victory uh, without sacrifice. There is no easy way out for Jesus. And so he rebukes Peter. So Jesus is with his disciples. Peter can't understand why Messiah would suffer. And so Jesus, what does he do? He begins to teach them. You see that, the cycle? Prediction misunderstanding and now he begins to teach them. Here's the teaching part. He looks to his disciples and he says, boys, let me teach you something. Not about my cross, but about your cross. And he begins to teach them about the cost of discipleship. That's the second thing for today. Notice the cost of discipleship. of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Notice the cost of discipleship. Notice what it really means to follow Jesus. Mark tells us here that Jesus called the crowds to himself with his disciples. So it's not only Jesus and his disciples now, now there's other people. Now we have the crowds coming in. We have the disciples and we have the crowds. Now, it seems like there's only two groups of people in here, but there's not. There's actually three groups of people in here. The first group is the converted group. It's Jesus' disciples minus Judas. Judas was not converted. He was not saved. So there's the converted, Jesus' 11 true disciples. The converted. The second group was the counterfeit, the counterfeit group, which included Judas. He was with his disciples. He was with the 12. He, he hung around the 12. He went to church with the 12. He went to small groups with the 12. He went to church events with the 12, but he was never truly converted. He was a counterfeit, a counterfeit disciple. The third group was the crowds. The crowds in Mark are never really a good thing. They want Jesus for what he has to offer. They don't want Jesus himself. They're just looking to see what they can get out of Jesus. And so you have those three groups, the crowds, the counterfeit, and the converted. And so this message, this radical call to discipleship is for all groups, for all groups. For the converted, this message is for them too. It's going to be a message of, hey, if you're truly my disciple, you have to stay the course. Stay the course. Persevere. Don't give up. Don't quit. For the counterfeit in the crowd, it's an evangelistic message. To come and find salvation in him. Two different, two different three different groups. Technically, if you want to get technical, two different groups. But the message is for all people. Yeah. And notice what Mark says here. Notice what Jesus says here. If anyone would come after me, Jesus is about to lay down the terms and the conditions for being his disciple. He's about to lay down the true marks of discipleship, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. He's going about to lay the terms down. Here's the thing. Jesus' disciples, us, we don't set the conditions. We don't set the terms He sets the conditions. He sets the terms. The first thing, the first condition he says, he says this, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. That's the first cost of discipleship, to deny oneself. What does it really mean to deny oneself? It means to disown, to refuse to associate with or to separate or distance from something or someone. Someone. Simply put, it's separation. That's what it means to deny. It's, it's separation from something or someone. And so Jesus is calling his disciples, us included, to no longer associate with the person that we were before, to realize our sinfulness and to separate from that sinfulness. In other words, it's also denying the ability to, that we can actually save ourselves, denying this idea that we can muster enough good works, that we're good enough people to earn our acceptance in front of God. He says, hey, you gotta deny yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't, you can't do enough works to earn my grace and my acceptance. I mean, that's just a burden, right? If you think work saves you, how many works do you need to be saved? How do you know when you get there? Or is it one of those things where you get to the pearly gates and you're like, I hope I had enough good works in my bank account. Jesus is saying, deny yourself. You can't do it. You're not good enough. But you know what? We don't have to be good enough because he was good enough. Not only does it, does it mean that we have to deny the ability to try to save ourselves, but it also means that we're to abandon all self-will, to abandon our ambitions, abandon our own agenda, abandon our own plans, to stop trusting in ourselves and to cling on to God and trust him. It means to live for God, live for his plans, live for, for his desires, live for his purposes and for his kingdom. Live for his church and his people. Live for people who don't know Christ yet. It's complete surrender. You see, the world doesn't revolve around us. The world is not about us. The world is about Jesus. And we live for him. And so Jesus is calling his disciples and saying, hey, deny yourself. Get rid of all the selfishness and get ready to surrender and self-sacrifice for me. Then Jesus gives a second condition. He says, and take up his cross. And take up his cross. Notice the word and there. And take up his cross. It's not an option to say, well, I'm going to deny myself, but I'm not going to take up my cross. It's not an option. The word "and" is in there for a reason. It's both denying oneself and taking up a cross. You see, today we see the cross as hope. We see the cross as a very positive thing these days in our culture, and especially in Christianity. We use it on shirts, we use it on bumper stickers we have jewelry with the cross, and that's totally cool. But the disciples saw it a lot different. When Jesus said, take up your cross, you know what was going on in their mind? Are you serious? No way. They were looking for the easy road, the easy way out, the exit door. Crucifixion was the worst type of death. It was so painful and so humiliating that no Roman citizen was actually allowed to be crucified. The person being crucified would carry a big wooden beam across their back, and they would carry that big wooden beam from the place they were judged to their execution site in front of everyone to see. Humiliating. Painful. And this is what Jesus' disciples thought when Jesus said, Take up your cross. Taking up your cross is synonymous with suffering. With suffering. Jesus essentially is saying, hey, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to follow me into suffering. You're going to have to follow me to the point of death if it happens. A willingness to endure persecution. You see, we must suffer for Christ. Christ. And our family members, a lot of times we've been rejected by a family member, a relative, someone we care about, who doesn't agree with us following after Jesus. We have to suffer at work, don't we? Co-workers, being very antagonistic to Christ and to Jesus. You could say God, but when you say Jesus, it's a whole new ballgame. And then you say Jesus is the only way? Opposition, difficulties, conflict. But Jesus says, hey, if you're going to follow me, you're going to endure suffering. You're going to endure persecution. You're going to endure heartache. Following Christ requires obedience to the point of death. It requires denying oneself. It's not about us. It requires surrender and self-sacrifice for Christ no matter the cost, and especially in this world. Turn on the news, get on social media. Christians, you are not liked by the culture. You're not liked by the culture. Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to take your ground? Are you willing to risk it all for Christ? And lastly, the third term is this, and follow me. You see the and again? Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Three of them. Requirements. Not one of them is optional. And follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to simply to imitate Jesus. That's what it means. To imitate Christ. If Jesus loves, we love. If Jesus shows grace, we show grace. If Jesus forgives, we forgive. If Jesus shows mercy, we show mercy. If Jesus dies, we die. If Jesus preaches the gospel, we preach the gospel. If Jesus endures suffering and pain and humiliation, then we endure pain and humiliation for Christ. It's simply like follow the leader when you were a kid. You remember that? In class, you had a a kid, and and he'd be the leader, and everyone just had to follow him and do exactly what he did. Same thing with us in Jesus. We do exactly what he did. That's what it means to follow after Christ, to imitate him, to obey him. And notice this Jesus says, and follow me. Jesus' call to follow him is not a call to follow a church. You don't follow a church. Jesus' call to follow him is not you following a pastor. You don't follow me. Trust me, I'm gonna fail you at some point. But I know who won't. I know who won't. That's Jesus. When Jesus said, follow me, it's not a call to follow your small group leader. It's a call to follow Christ not an institution, not the pastor, not the leaders. It's a call to follow Christ. This radical call to follow Jesus is not a call to simply walk down an aisle and pray a prayer and sign a card. It's not what it's about. See, a lot of times we believe that when Jesus calls people and saves people, that's the end. I'm a follower of Christ. I give my life to Jesus, that's it, that's over. You see, but following Jesus doesn't end at conversion. It begins at conversion. So, to close, question for the three groups here today. At every church, there's always going to be the converted, the counterfeit, and the crowd. In every church. Believers that are true believers, are you willing to pay the cost to follow Christ? Believers, are you willing to pay the cost to follow Christ? Are you willing to deny yourself, love people when you don't want to love them, care for people when you don't want to care for them, sacrifice for God, His kingdom, His church? Not taking the easy road, not looking for the bare minimum, but are you willing to give up of your time, your talents, your treasures, sacrifice everything for the call that God has upon your life? Are you willing to pay the cost? Believer. What is the motivation for a believer to continue paying the cost? Because it's, price, it's pricey. Following Jesus isn't easy. It's going to cost you a lot finances, relationships, reputation, all kinds of stuff. What's the motivation? Jesus says in verse 35, what does he say? For my sake and the gospel's sake. That's our motivation. For the glory of God and the good of the world. That's our motivation. For the glory of God, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of God, we continue to give up everything for the gospel, for the good of the world. This world needs to hear the message of the gospel. That is our motivation. It's a gospel with power. It's a gospel that saves, that Jesus Christ came to earth, born of a virgin, lived the life that we should have lived, but died the death, that we should have died, sinless, perfect, died on the cross to bear the wrath of the Father that we were intended to bear. And if you repent and place your faith in Christ, you would have eternal life. The gospel. because there's people in our world that are in need of hope. That is our motivation that may our life bring God glory for the good of the world. Second group, third group, the counterfeit. Maybe you think you're saved. If you read the book of James, it says that, hey, if you're truly saved, there's evidence. Like there's evidence that you are truly saved. You're not saved by works, but your works display if you're truly saved. It gives us a hint that there's been a transformation in your heart. Counterfeit in the crowd, are you willing to pay the, cross, the, the, the cost to follow after Jesus? Are you willing to pay the cost to follow after Jesus, to receive forgiveness, eternal life, purpose, salvation? It's costly. You're going to have to pay one way or another. Here's the cool thing about Jesus. If you notice, he says, if anyone would come after me, anyone, anyone. This is a call to anyone to come to him. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you look like, how much money you have in the bag, the, the color of your skin, none of that matters. If anyone would come after me, You're willing to pay the cost. The invitation's there. Would you place your faith in Christ? Would you repent of your sin to follow after him? It's before you. It's up to you. We don't force anyone to follow Jesus here. And guess what? Even if you don't follow Jesus today, you still want to come back, welcome home. We love you and care about you. Let me pray. God, we love you. And we're glad that We have a God that didn't take the easy road. That through his actions, through your actions, Christ, through your suffering, we have salvation. We have life. We have a purpose. We have forgiveness. We have eternal life. You set the example for us. And so God, I pray that you would give us the boldness to those of us who are believers, that you would give us the boldness, the courage, the strength to be willing to count the cost and be okay with it. That we would deny ourselves, that we would Sacrifice everything that we are for you, for your kingdom and for people in need of hope. May you give us the courage to the power of your spirit to live differently, to be true disciples of you, Jesus, not disciples who only give you lip service, but heart surrender and life sacrifice. God, I pray for those in here today or watching online who who really don't know you and don't have a relationship with you. May you draw them to you. May they count the cost, but know that when we have you, Jesus, we have everything. Even if people abandon us, even if people mock us, even if people are in opposition to us. We have everything in you. We could lose everything, but if we have you, Christ, we have everything. God, we give you all the praise and all the glory in this place. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those who give generously to this ministry. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. If you feel led to give, please use the link below as we seek to make a difference in people's lives. Also, please make sure to share this with your family and your friends. Again, thank you so much for listening.